You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Greetings, 21st Century Radio listeners. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus introducing tonight's pre-recorded show with great sadness. A few days ago, we learned of the passing of a great light in this world with a soaring voice of an angel on the wings of an eagle. May she rise to the heaven worlds. Joanne Shenandoah, our beloved friend and mentor in the ways of the Iroquois path of peace, has left her physical body for the world of the spirit, leaving behind the thousands who were touched by her grace and artistry and love. For several years, we opened every 21st century radio program with the voice of Joanne Shenandoah singing, One World, One Mind, One Love We Will Find. On common ground, peace will be found for all on earth. That sums up the message of Joanne Shenandoah. She will be sorely missed. Joanne Shenandoah was one of America's most celebrated and critically acclaimed Native American musicians of her time. She won a Grammy Award and was nominated for two others, plus multiple other awards for her music, both traditional and contemporary. A direct descendant of the famed Oneida chief Shenandoah, who was a friend and ally of George Washington. Joanne Shenandoah is a founding board member of the Hiawatha Institute for Indigenous Knowledge, a nonprofit educational facility based on Iroquois principles. Tonight, in her honor and tribute, we are rebroadcasting an interview we recorded with her in 2011, where we talk about and play selections from her symphony called Sky Woman, which is based on the Iroquois creation story. She is joined in this interview by her husband and true partner in this life, Doug George Canentio, who stays with us for the second hour of the program to focus more academically on his work, Iroquois culture and commentary. We will miss you, Joanne Shenandoah. She who sings, you left the world a better place than you found it, and that is a life very well lived. Peace be with you. Now, we were just listening to a snippet from a song written by one of our guests this hour, Grammy Award winner, Joanne Shenandoah, from her Sky Woman Symphony, which we will hear more about in a few minutes. And in fact, all the music you hear tonight, in and out of the commercials, will be original music by Joanne Shenandoah. Now, before I introduce her properly, however, I want to give you just a little bit of information, background information on my interest in the League of the Iroquois, about a quarter of a century ago, my life changed radically when I learned the truth about where our founding fathers received guidance on founding this new republic. Now, it may not be taught in our schools, but there is no doubt that the League of the Iroquois Indians created a republic on this continent in 1142 A.D. There is overwhelming documentation to show that the Iroquois League taught our founding fathers George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Tom Paine, and many, many others how to establish a republic. Now, the greatest mistake our founding fathers made were leaving out two things the League said we must do. End slavery and give women equal status. Now, those failures have been the bane of not only America's uh, existence, but also the bane of the rest of the planet as well. 
In my last two books, my opening chapters described and documented the importance of the League of the Iroquois, and every time I'm interviewed for the History, Discovery, National Geographic, Sci-Fi Channels, Canadian, Russian, German, television, all over the planet, I've always tried to convince them to address this topic in their programs, but to no avail. Now, we will be taking a lot tonight, from, uh, talking a lot, that is, about symbols and myths. So I want to say just a little bit about the oral traditions and how the symbols and myths are the key to our societal well-being. According to Carl Jung and others, symbols play a central role in the integration of the personality. They direct us to the center of our being. Mythology leads us to the missing part of the whole and mends our alienation from life. The absence of a symbol or a myth system leaves communities without formative agents and without basic foundations, thereby increasing instability and anxiety. And one of the reasons indigenous societies around the world have remained intact for centuries is the profound meaning they find in life. And the part of that is due to their oral traditions and emphasis on symbols and myths. Now on to the program. It is said that when Johan Shenandoah sings on stage, the ancestors join her. Joanne is a member of the Wolf Clan of the Iroquois Confederacy and one of the most acclaimed Native American recording artists of her time. She has performed at Carnegie Hall, the White House, Kennedy Center, Earth Day on the Mall, Woodstock 94, the Parliament of the World's Religions in South Africa, and thousands, literally thousands of venues in the United States and around the world. She has performed or recorded with so many stars I can't begin to name them all, but just a few are enough to blow you away. Neil Young, Willie Nelson, Judy Collins, Jackson Brown, Chris Christopher, Ray Charles, Bill Miller, Joan Baez, Emmylou Harris, and scores and scores more. And she's performing with Pete Seeger next weekend at Clearwater in Croton on the Hudson. Also an actress, Joanne plays a major role in The Last Winter, a thriller film on global warming starring Ron Perlman. She's joining us tonight together with her husband, journalist, and activist Douglas George. I think it's pronounced Canentio. Well, probably, I probably got that wrong. Well, who I will introduce properly in the next segment because our time with Joanne is limited tonight. Together, Doug and Joanne have written a book called Sky Woman, Legends of the Iroquois, illustrated by Dave and John Fadden, our mutual friend who connected us with so many great speakers on the Iroquois traditions. So thank you, John, and hope to visit your uh, Six Nations Museum again in upstate New York in the future months. Joanne and Doug are joining us tonight to share the Iroquois Corey Legends with us through the song and story. And later in the program, we will get into more history with Doug's book, Iroquois Culture and Commentary. But right now, welcome to 21st Century Radio, Joanne Shenandoah and Douglas George. I think that was probably one of the longest introductions on planet Earth. Are you guys? <laughs> Are you there? Hello. Yes, Dr. Bob. Oh, boy. It's so good to have you here, Joanne. Doug, you there? I'm here, too. I am so much looking to, looking forward to talking to you both. Uh, we've been looking forward to this for, oh, gosh, several weeks at least. Now, we're going to focus on Joanne's music in this first segment and play some of the pieces from her Sky Woman Symphonic Odyssey of Iroquois Legends. Joanne, before we play the first piece of Sky Woman, what would you like to tell us about how you were inspired to write this symphony or anything about your creative process when you write music? Well... Primarily, I am. I feel very blessed to be given the gift of music. Um, my native name is Digaliwakwa, which means she sings. Now, I, uh, my husband and I had put this book together. Oh gosh, I'm trying 
trying to remember the, the date. Uh, it's been a while ago, 1998, I think. And a good friend of mine came over from Germany. His name is Gerhard Riedman, and he visited us at a very sacred site called Genondigan. And he said, Joanne, this is, uh, this is in books in Europe. It's one of the world's sacred sites. I need to go there. And I was like, oh, that's just down the road. And wow. this is a place where um, they say uh, the first clan mother uh, is to be buried, uh, or was buried. Her name was Jugunsase. And I started telling him about these, these beautiful stories and our legends and our creation story, how Sky Woman came to Earth. And we uh, spent uh, the next, uh, I would say, week uh, writing songs for every single story in the book. And it took 12 years, but we finally did a full-on um, symphonic production with uh, 68 members on stage with the Syracuse Symphony, and then finally recorded it with the New Mexico and Santa Fe Symphony. And it became a PBS special, which was uh, aired nationwide. So it was a really, really uh, an incredible blessing to be able to bring these stories to the stage first time uh, ever. Uh, I don't think this has ever been done before, where a whole hour of legends of the, I would say, indigenous peoples of America were actually put on stage with the full symphony. Well, congratulations. That's just extraordinary, both the album and the book. Wow, geez, you know. Uh, unfortunately, I wish we had six hours tonight, but okay, we are now going to play Sky Woman, which is about four minutes long, and then we will come back to talk about this creation with you and George. Oh, that was just lovely. Uh, Doug or Joanne, we got a good overview of the Sky Woman story from this song, but would you please fill in the blanks for our listeners who have never heard the tale of Sky Woman before? Sure. In essence, what it is is it takes the arrival of the human spirit, which in our story traces it to another place. Now, one of the um, patterns that uh, is carried over generations amongst the Iroquois people is that this is not the only planet that has human-like intelligence, uh, that the creator is seen as a type of uh, uh, gardener, a cultivator who takes uh, human intelligence to consciousness from the source, from the place of light, and brings it to different pl um, planets where it, it then is given certain responsibilities. And in our uh, way of thinking that that uh, origin of life has to be feminine because that is, you know, according to biological natural law, that's the one that uh, is most logical and makes most sense to us. So the first human-type being is, is, a, is a female. The second human-type being is a female. And not till we get to the uh, third generation do we introduce the life-taking element, the males, and, and that's at that point where trouble begins. And so this tells a story of uh, uh, not only how life came to this planet, but what is um, ultimately our uh, destination once we leave this earth um, and we return back to the, the place of light. The young woman's name is translated as to Mature Flower. Is that correct? Oh, yes. Yes. Well, you exactly. know, this is one of the most fascinating things about yeah. about Sky Woman and the story. Every one of the names, the mature flower, holder of heavens. Yes. Um, uh, let's see if I can remember the snapping turtle. Well, that that's, you know, isn't it? And then, of course, when there are so many other, other extraordinary things within this yes. system of mythology. 
and they're very yes. up. They're very uplifting. I'm sorry to talk over you. I apologize. No, that's fine. It is a it is a very positive uh, story. Um, it's a story that's defined by a amazing uh, narrative and has high drama to it. It's a very exciting story. It's a very uh, compelling story, um, <clears throat> and it uh, it gives us a sense of of uh, attachment and belonging. Uh, to, to this earth, uh, not just as indigenous peoples here, but uh, humans generally. And what it does, very clearly, it defines what our duties and obligations are, not only towards ourselves, uh, but to the natural world. And in the telling um, of not only that story, the great epic, uh, but other Iroquois stories, it's, uh, again, this is affirmed time and time again. We belong and uh, um, to this planet, and we have certain very specific duties towards her, that she is a living, conscious uh, entity, uh, a being in, in her own way. And that has to be uh, stressed. That's most emphatic, that there's no separation between humans um, and, and, and the planet upon which we walk. And she's very conscious of our steps upon her. Also, Bob, I'd like to add that um, many of the animals who gathered around her were uh, very instrumental in bringing about what we call today Turtle Island, where they all tried, they all gathered about her, they uh, did their best to try to make a place for her to land. And that's a beautiful thing. When you see, uh, you know, you see it happening today, even in our world, um, where, for example, when the tsunami hit in India, where the elephants were out there bringing people in. I mean, they have a natural ability to sense uh, the fact that, you know, we all need to live together in harmony and balance with each other. Indeed, that is true. Let me hold up the illustrations to the microphone so our listeners can see some of these. I mean, because John John and David did an extraordinary job, I'm telling you. They did. They they come from a very strong uh, artistic background, which is... Uh, typical of Iroquois life, there's a heavy emphasis on the visual, on carrying stories across the generation using visual means. Uh, we used to use wampum belts and uh, other forms of art, you know, uh, carvings, um, ceramics, things like this, all meant to uh, carry the story of the storyteller uh, to the people that are hearing it. And these stories, while there might be some minor um, variances um, are, are fairly consistent over the endless generations since they first took place. And that's, that's it's necessary to for people to understand that these describe real physical uh, actions that took place on this earth. And I'll give you one example. Um, the scientists of the West are now discovering, or at least to their knowledge, that the moon is in fact uh, a fragment of the planet and it was spun off this earth and took its orbit and over the years, you know, uh, took the form that it's now in. But in Iroquois, our Skywoman epic, it tells, we already knew that. We knew that a section of the earth was removed from this planet, was hurled into the sky. And the challenge was how do you describe that in a way that uh, people would understand. And so it takes the form of 
the uh, original human being, Sky Woman, taking her daughter's um, head and putting it into the sky where it would shine and provide its own light and also watch over the flow of water uh, throughout this this, uh, this reality. And we know that the, you know, again, through scientific research that the moon does control tides and other um, uh, parts of, the, of our existence that involve water. The cycles of women. Cycles of women. And uh, so that's, you know, the story has a scientific basis to it. And once they do this drilling into the Earth's surface, they're going to find, our planet's surface, they're going to find that it does have water. We could have told them that. Yeah. And that what they're going to find is that water in the moon is consistent with the water in the Pacific Ocean from where the, uh, the moon came from. Oh, thank you so much for making sure you put that in there. Sure. Uh, that's super important because I've found in my limited, you know, I'm just a student. And being a student of this for, um, for just 25 years is not long enough for me to have any real deep comprehension of this. So it's just so wonderful to have people with us tonight that, that are in school. And, and, and you grew up with this. Uh, but we need to get to Grandmother Moon or else we're going to run out of time. We're only going to listen to two minutes of it. My boss over there is looking at me. Isn't that right, boss? Yes. Okay. All right. Let's get to Grandmother Moon because, boy, we have some wonderful <laughs> individuals here, gusts of wind and ice skin, new tree, and, of course, mature flower plays a major part in this. We'll be right with you. Whoa, boy, boy, did, friends, did you did you hear those words? They were like crystals. Jeez, oh, whiz. That one, her changing face always measures time. Wow. I mean, this kind of stuff... Carl Jung would have loved this. He, <laughs> he really would. Uh, no, well, I, in the interest of time, we need to get on to some translating of this. Uh, so, Doug, what would you like to tell us? Well, Doug George is looking for a book for you at the moment. Okay. But I'd like to tell you that um, our grandmother, Moon, we have 13 ceremonies a year, and it's all based around uh, the cycles of life. And everything that we do from planting to birthing to sending someone on their journey to the spirit world uh, has to do with song and celebration. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're very blessed to have still have a lot of these um, stories and um, our, you know, our, our creator-given gift to be able to share these with the world. So you we're know, just thrilled to be with you tonight, Bob. Well, you know, when you're singing this, of course, you know, knowing that your name really reads She Sings, um, you... <laughs> You seem to, uh, please, don't be, uh, I don't want to embarrass you, but you seem to be connecting right with uh, the Earth Mother. Uh, and this process is really elevating to anyone who listens to those crystal sounds that you that come out of you in regards to this. And I, I don't want to embarrass you or anything, so I better shut up. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, uh, it elevates consciousness and awareness, and I'm, I'm certain you're sure of that, right? I am very aware, yes, and I've been, um, you know, incredibly blessed in that I've had the opportunity to do this for the last 20 years um, and had some amazing experiences around the world. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a really a great thing. Uh, Doug and I have had a chance to travel from Africa to Korea to Spain to you name it, um, Australia. Uh, we've been all over the globe telling people about our great messages of hope and of peace and of love and um, how we are to live in balance with each other in the natural world. And that's primarily 
uh, what a lot of people are seeking today is sustainability. How do we live on our planet when the rest of the world is concerned with it ending? Mm -hmm. We know our prophecy tells us that it will not end and that we are very blessed to be able to to help, help in that. Well, that's the reason why I think it's so important today. It's so important today to hear these words and hear this music and and look at these photo, these drawings and paintings, which uh, which I think really elevated as well. What what a great combination! Um, it, it, did uh, Douglas come back? Yeah, I'm here. Did you find what you needed? Yes, I did. So when we get into the conversation about uh, specifics regarding how uh, the Iroquois people. Um, interacted with their visitors from across the Great Salt Water, and storytelling was an integral part of that interaction. And we can go into that in, you know, in depth. Um, but I want to just emphasize what uh, Joanne was saying, is that the Iroquois still retain the essence we do <clears throat> of our identity. The, we still have the, the speakers and the rituals which define us as, as a uh, indigenous people. And that's very important. Um, in these days of great transition and enormous cultural compromises brought about brought about to us by activities like gambling, there's still little lights left across Native America. Still, people holding out. Still, people holding on to these these uh, these stories, these legends, and these disciplines. And while most uh, Aboriginal peoples in North America um, <clears throat> are on the road to some kind of uh, fatal cultural compromise. You know, the Haudenosaunee people, the Iroquois people, uh, still carry on. Indeed, and boy, that uh, your book, Iroquois Culture and Commentary, taught me yeah. so much. And then after that, you knocked me on the chair, off the chair, with Iroquois on fire. <laughs> we have to do a whole show on that because, boy, I yeah. it is yeah. I, it's sad to learn these things. But I mean, there's a big hole in my education, and you really, yeah. I, I am so happy that yeah. I'm beginning to learn more about this. And well, I, what's 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 really important for your leaders, for your excuse me, your listeners to understand is that uh, uh, Native people we have the same challenges as everybody else. In some cases, even more so, uh, but. Uh, we're only viable as uh, <clears throat> uh, political entities, as as Aboriginal sovereign peoples, insofar as we have some kind of uh, distinct elements of our culture. You know, it doesn't make any sense for us to claim sovereignty in one sense, in one way, and in, in the other, just uh, surrender the essence of our heritage. And uh, these stories, the Sky Woman epic, and the dozens, if not hundreds, of other Iroquois legends give us that uh, perspective, that uh, define us as to who we are as a people, give us a sense of belonging to a specific part of uh, Turtle Island. They give us meaning and substance, and that's why it's so important, and that's why Joanne and I um, elected to write this book, and while it's been... And it's now, I think, in a sixth printing. Yes, it is. It's sixth printing. It's gorgeous. Well, look, we need to take a break. Is that right, boss lady? And uh, I was just wondering if Joanne could hang on just a little bit longer so that we can get to the other two songs. Is that possible? Sure. Thank you. Thank you. All right, friends. Uh, Douglas George. Um, Good Pine is his name. And I think it's pronounced, can- I should have asked him, of course, Canonet. Can- 
Cannonetio. Hey, thank you. And and Joanne Shenandoah, and she sings. I couldn't possibly pronounce your, <laughs> your <laughs> name. Uh, and, but it's Sky Woman, Legends of the Iroquois, Clear Light Publications. Iroquois culture and commentary is what we'll talk about, uh, not next segment, but because we want to finish up on this. Plus, oh my heavens, the Grammy award-winning music of Joanne Shenandoah, joanneshenandoah.com. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus once again dedicating tonight's broadcast to the late Joanne Shenandoah, who passed away last week at the age of 64. Joanne and her husband, Douglas George Canentio, have been our beloved friends and mentors in the ways of the Iroquois, and this hour we are rebroadcasting their interview recorded in 2011. Joanne was a promoter of peace through music. She performed for such noted leaders as His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Nelson Mandela, Mikhail Gorbachev, and at such prestigious locations as the White House, at five presidential inaugurations, Carnegie Hall, the Vatican, Madison Square Garden, and Woodstock 94. May she rise to the heaven worlds on the wings of the eagle. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm the uh, allegedly Dr. Bob Hieronymus and our executive producer and research assistant Laura Cortner. And our engineer is A.Y. Warshaw. Now we're back with Douglas George and he is Good Pine. That's his Mohawk name, Good Pine. Douglas George was born and raised in Aquasani Territory and now lives in Oneida Territory. He is actively involved in issues affecting the Confederacy and has been writing about developments in Indian country for the past decade. An award-winning columnist, he has served as advisor, producer, and scriptwriter for national television documentaries on Iroquois subjects. In addition to co-authoring Skywoman, Legends of the Iroquois, with his wife, Johan Shenandoah, he writes regular columns for the Syracuse Herald American and News from Indian Country. He's also a member of the Board of Trustees of the National Museum of the American Indian. And we're going to talk about his book, Iroquois Culture and Commentary. But first, I would like to get to one thing. Who is the corn maiden and how is she important? Well, corn, um, honest, in, in Mohawk, was one of the gifts from the uh, Sky Woman. When she came from the other place, a place of light, she brought certain uh, seeds with her, certain plants, uh, and those are tobacco, uh, corn, and strawberries. And uh, corn is something that even today scientists are having a hard time figuring out where exactly it came from because it doesn't have any immediate relatives in, in the uh, in the other plant kingdom or plant world shouldn't say kingdom but uh, so the corn is something that uh, is central to our existence and and to our our culture and when our people see that it reaches a certain height we gather together and give thanks uh, specifically to the corn uh, for for giving us the means which we need to carry on. And we have elements and spirits that live within each specific plant, not just the corn maiden, but other elements, and we, have, we acknowledge them as well. 
Well, the, um, more re- most recently, a book has come out that we're sending a copy to you of yes. called Ancient Egyptian Maze by Dr. Yes. Gunnar Thompson. Oh, you're familiar with it? Well, I know the, the uh, exchange of information and ideas amongst uh, and technologies amongst peoples on this planet is not something that is restricted to the European experience. That's for sure. But it has been ongoing for as long as there's been human beings and uh, the, the need to see what's over the next horizon or beyond the next hill. And in the process of doing this traveling about, we carry certain things with us, much like uh, the insects uh, will carry the pollen from certain plants, and that's what we do. So long before the Europeans um, uh, developed certain uh, ocean-borne craft that enabled them to circle this planet using the winds, uh, other peoples had done the same thing. Oh, yeah. And so it's not surprising to us at all you're going to find elements of Aboriginal culture in what is now the Mideast and in other places on this earth. Yes, indeed. Indeed. You can sit in a bathtub on the northeast coast of Africa, and and just the current just brings you here. Yes. It's not not hard. It is very... And and see, that's one of the things that... uh, There's a certain type of ethnocentrism that takes place in all... in in Western ideas and uh, philosophies and and politics. And I I understand why uh, they need to create these these myths um, that give them the the attitude that somehow they they are are, um, God-directed or have the right to assume certain uh, powers. And, uh, but logically, if we take it back to, 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 seeing people as they are as human beings and yes we see that uh, certain things certain uh, uh, common sense type of uh, uh, transfers took place and one of the things that native people realized in the pacific and in, in the atlantic was that the earth moved in in a circular manner and as she does so she moves the waters in conjunction with our grandmother the moon and the waters don't move in a linear type way they move in a cyclical type fashion. And if you know how the cycle moves, then you can very easily uh, find that, that stream and, uh, and you know, find yourself on, uh, on a different part of uh, the hemisphere. It's very easy to do. That's one of the keys to the Polynesians being able to uh, um, go across great expansions of, of water, you know, to go from from Tahiti to Hawaii and back, to, uh, to from Hawaii to the western coast of uh, North America. Just follow these currents. Mm-hmm. If you know that, then you can get from fairly easily get from one place to another. Well, could you tell us the story of the twins and what that says yeah. about the need for sure. balance in the world uh, between light and dark and positive and oh, negative? Oh, yes. <clears throat> yes. You see, we don't, we're not restricted or hampered by a singular... Uh, God, all-knowing God. We, uh, we do have a creator uh, <clears throat> whose face is unknown to us. Um, in all likelihood, it's, it's a feminine being. Uh, but in the process of creating, it requires that there has to be certain uh, energy, certain tensions have to take place. Uh, <clears throat> the Alpha and Omega, the, uh, 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 <clears throat> the positive and the negative, um, 
in that uh, we express that perception of this great natural uh, collision taking place, uh, this great natural tension through our oral traditions. And we tell the story of how uh, the twins, uh, Okwilaze and Tewiskalon, um, Maple and Flint, uh, were uh, gestating inside their mother, and that uh, there was tension even when they were in the womb. <clears throat> and uh, one of them decided he would be born into this world in, in a natural way, and the other one elected to, uh, in a hurry, come through his mother's left armpit, and doing so caused her death. Uh, when he emerged into this world, he had a darker kind of skin, a flint-covered skin, uh, which is where he gets his name from. And on top of his head, uh, he had a ridge of, of bone, which is where the famous uh, Mohawk haircut comes from. Yeah. Uh, and that's what he used in order to cut his way through his mother. And as they developed as young uh, boys and then to men, there was a great contest over the uh, who would shape the destinies of the human beings and who would uh, uh, um, <clears throat> shape life on this earth. And, uh, but it was essential that they, they had this, this energy, this, this challenge between the two. Mm -hmm. yeah. And at uh, the end, there wasn't any victor. Um, but one uh, was uh, given... Um, the responsibility of introducing um, um, beauty and harmony and, and uh, all good things on this planet. And the other one, uh, uh, in contrast to his brother, brought about things that consume good and beauty and harmony. Mm -hmm. And while one is a creature of light, the other one is a being who lives within the bowels of Mother Earth. Well, in a lot of these stories, I noticed a repeated yeah. message from yes. the celestial beings that humans yes. have forgotten the ancient teachings to honor yes. the earth and the creator, and that yes. this lapse is yes. responsible, and I want to emphasize this, that's yes. the lapse that's responsible for all strife and sickness. Please elaborate yes. on this. Yeah, that, that, that's true, and uh, there's always in the Iroquois thinking uh, uh, that uh, the... the uh, Human illness and disharmony that exists within our minds and our hearts is is one of the primary cause of sicknesses, and that the Iroquois approach to medicine, as remarked by the people who came and, and first visited us, was that it was a holistic approach to healing. It involved uh, uh, psychological counseling uh, through our. It involved dream interpretation. It involved uh, physical therapy, and it involved the change of diet, uh, all those things that we now associate with uh, certain professionals were an integral part of Iroquois life at the time of contact. So we had all those elements. It wasn't Sigmund Freud uh, who invented the idea of dream therapy. They, you know, in our society, if you look at the Jesuit relations, they describe collective dream therapy taking place uh, in our societies um, in the uh, uh, 17th century, but it had obviously been going on much, much longer than that, because we realize that unless you cure and at least the powers of, of the mind, unless you have some kind of uh, psychological reconciliation, uh, then the physical tensions will remain, and it's almost all of our illnesses are related to just that. Um, but not just us. It's you know we need collective <laughs> psychoanalysis, and and we need ceremonies that enable us to release that that tension uh, that often produces 
uh, warfare uh, amongst communities and certainly amongst nations. So we have very specific rituals for doing this. Well, how do these celestial beings interact with humans? Oh, and here's where it comes from. All human beings, you know, the Creator loved uh, human beings, <clears throat> gave us enormous uh, talents. It gave us incredible sensory apparatus in order to enjoy this wonderful uh, planet. What our duty is, is to take that uh, experience and then bring it back with us as we turn, journey back to this place of light. But we, each one of us, has a, a spiritual component, not just a physical one. We know instinctively that something else uh, constitutes uh, human existence. It's, it's not just the physical, and it's not uh, God. It's something more profound and personal than that. There is a spiritual reality to everything we do, and there are spiritual beings that watch over us. And uh, they could be ancestors from our past, or they could be other entities that look out for our well-being. But we, that means we have uh, to develop a relationship with them. Where collective uh, suffering occurs on this planet, and people say that all the time, how come we, we have to endure this great crisis? How come there's warfare, and how come there's suffering? Well, it happens when there's a disconnect between the spiritual, spiritual world and, and, and uh, ourselves and this physical uh, reality that we define as, as our existence. So we have to acknowledge that the spiritual beings are there. They act as our guides. And when necessary, they, they, they uh, can uh, lend us uh, specific assistance. Then when our time is over, they will escort us uh, along that path of stars back to this place of light. That's what we're told. So do they intercede to help individuals after prayer or supplication? Yes, they can, if specifically asked. If asked. If asked. Now, this is very important. Whenever Iroquois affect healing, we make direct, specific uh, requests to those spiritual beings to work with us uh, as we approach healing. Um, that's, that's, that's extremely important. Um, and we're not praying to anything. We're not worshiping uh, anything. What we're doing is we're simply acknowledging our gratitude, our reliance upon the other elements of creation, and then we're asking the spiritual beings to help us along as we go through this life. Well, is there a concept of the Great Mother Goddess in the Iroquois yes. tradition? Well, everything, you know, life, what we call it, there are two, besides the, the two twins, or excuse me, the twins, there's also the feminine and the masculine, the life-giving and the life-taking. And we designed our society in order to strive for a balance between that. Um, so sometimes the life-giving element takes certain, I guess you would call, um, very powerful and profound form and physical shape. And uh, in, when we gather together, we have something we call a hondo galiwetekwa, which means the words that come before everything else. And during the course of this, um, we recognize that there are spiritual beings who exist on the on the edge of the edge of this planet, and sometimes they take physical form so that we can recognize them. We might call them prophets or goddesses or great teachers. You know, we might call them Mahatma Gandhi or or, or um, Martin Luther King, but they are in tune with the divine, uh, the spiritual, 
and they remind us of our duties and what our responsibilities are. So yes, there, at certain instances, it does take very specific feminine form. Uh, Mary Magdalene <clears throat> in the epic of of uh, of, uh, of um, Yeso, Jesus Christ, is a good example of that. Indeed, indeed, much maligned. Well. Much maligned, yes, maligned. and that's what happens when you take the integrity of stories as brought across a generation by elders, um, and then you take it and you put it into written form, and then it becomes doctrine. <laughs> ah, yes. And then it becomes unwavering. Then it loses its 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 uh, its energy and its color and its dynamics. Um, when you take it from the verbal to to the printed word, then it becomes absolute. And when it becomes absolute, people become wedded to that, and then it becomes restrictive, and then once that happens, it, it, it becomes institutionalized and then becomes a weapon. It certainly has. I, that's yeah. one of the great values of an oral tradition, yes. uh, which, which we'll hopefully be able to touch on a little later on. And my boss yes. says we need to take a break here. Yes. Our guest is Douglas George, Good Pine. What a wonderful name, Good Pine, because every yeah. now... Yeah, it's a, their clan name from from the Mohawk Nation, yeah, because yeah, you know, I mean, that makes you of the of the same wood as the sacred tree. Exactly, that's what it does, and that's a, a great responsibility. But like everything else, uh, it's transitory. So I just borrow the name, and when my time comes, it goes back into the clan, and they go, they'll give it to someone else. Well, thank you for joining us again, and of course, we'll return with Douglas George, Good Pine. And the book we're referring to at this time is Iroquois Culture and Commentary, Clear Light Publications. French, you got to get a copy of this book. you got to get I'll tell you a little bit more about it when, before. But, and there's also a deal. Here's the deal. If you get a copy of this book, Iroquois Culture and Commentary, Clear Light Publications, and you can prove that you purchased a copy, you can have any book that we've ever talked about on 21st Century Radio or any book that I've written or Zahara has written, this is a very important, seminal work that you really need to learn. Well, I believe that. I'll be back with our guest, Douglas George, in just a few minutes. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Our guest is Douglas George, Good Pine, and uh, we're about to discuss Iroquois culture and commentary, Clear Light Publications. And as I said before, you purchase a copy of this book. And if you can prove it to me, and that's relatively easy to do, any book that we've ever written, any book that any guest that we've had for the past quarter of a century, we still got books from those that, you know, our, 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 our guests are very generous with us. And they know we don't sell anything. We, we Our job is to pass on information to help educate people that's what that's what our key job is here uh, on 21st century radio doug how did dr barbara mann and jerry fields determine that the world's first united nations the league of the iroquois was founded on august the 31st 1142 a.d that's because they gave full credence to all traditions to the idea that there was a a cohesive uh political group that had democratic principles was something that the Americans were reluctant to accept for many generations because they were wedded to the myth that uh, Indian people were nomadic and regional and barbaric and simplistic. And when confronted with this idea that, uh, in fact, the uh, 
and they were complex people with uh, innovative technologies and people who who were given to high political discourse and debate and and diplomacy was actually was dangerous to the mythkeepers because it you know it challenged uh, one of the divine principles under which the United States was created. The assumption that we were simplistic people, and that's not the case. Not at all. But if they, if they had listened to us, as, as some of them had in the colonial era, but the great writers of the American story had neglected that, they would have heard these, this, uh, us telling them that, uh, yes, we did exist at a time long before the Europeans, that uh, the Confederacy... Uh, stands as the world's oldest United Nations, a truly democratic institution, and it was formed at that specific time. Why? Because that's what our oral traditions tell us. They tell us that it was an ancient league before the people from the salt water came, and that it took place at a certain time in what is now central New York State, when the corn was uh, just before it was about uh, to be um, harvested, and that it occurred in late summer, or uh, and that it occurred when there was an eclipse uh, as as the moon was going between the earth and the sun. Now, we knew what eclipses were because we were mathematically inclined. And so all of those things taken together, they came up using uh, um, <clears throat> their own science and their, astron- our, our <clears throat> their knowledge of, of uh, movement of stars. Um, they were able to figure out that the only conceivable date that this co- could have occurred was in the afternoon of August 31st on 1142. <laughs> Not that we were wedded to that specific, you know, in our tradition to a linear time, but to us that made perfect sense. Well, it does. I just love the rationality as to how yeah. they pinned this down. God yes. bless them for doing yes. that. It was just it's a matter of listening to, to the older ones That's who had, right. had no reason to distort or to exaggerate or lie. And it leads us into another area of discussion, is if that can be verified by, by uh, uh, and, uh, um, hard physical sciences, what else could we learn from the oral traditions? And it goes into this area of, of where exactly the, uh, did this idea of, of democracy uh, come from. And our older people, I remember telling us this years ago, that it was a gift by the Aboriginal people, and specifically by the Iroquois, uh, to the world. And again, that was considered uh, heresy among certain academics. You know, the assumption that uh, primitive people could actually do this was incredible. Mm-hmm. But the documentation that's being uncovered and has been uncovered substantiates that there was intense uh, interaction uh, between the leaders of our Confederacy as well as other Native nations and those people who became uh, founders of uh, the American uh, nation. Not not just politically, but symbolically as well. You know, uh, our influence runs all through the United States in many, many subtle ways from, from uh, the use of certain imagery uh, at that time, to to uh, you know the actual design of of uh, the United States Congress. Well, even more basic than that, our food, yes, our, our medicine. Yes, virtually everything Americans enjoy today uh, in the way of food came from Native people, and it wasn't casual. You know, I, I I have to emphasize this, and 
the great historian Jack Weatherford has substantiated what we've been saying for years in his books, uh, Savages and Civilization and Native Roots and Indian Giver. He's just carrying on a message that we have been, uh, we first brought to the attention of the American public a couple generations ago, that there's no part of American life that has not been profoundly affected by Native people, whether it's the corn they eat or put into their gasoline, their cars now, or the clothes they wear. <clears throat> you know, it, it, that, from a purely technological perspective, our influence has been enormous. We can actually say that the greatest event in human history occurred when the peoples of our respective hemispheres met each other and began to exchange uh, these, these uh, technologies and these ideas. Certainly the greatest challenge to Christianity occurred when they confronted people who were living in a condition of, <clears throat> of, of uh, paradise without the sanctions of the church. <laughs> that created a huge dilemma for, for, for the papacy. Yeah, uh, you know, I think one of the greatest personal dilemmas, because I was going to be yeah. a priest at one time, yeah. was uh, in reading the history of the yeah. church and learning yeah. that women were not allowed to have a Bible, uh, yes. or read the Bible, yes. uh, un until about maybe a hundred and some years ago. I mean, th that's, yes. this is amazing. This is, yes. Women were actually considered inferior to men, and uh, yes. just above children. And <laughs> yes, well, it's, uh, it, it's in American society underwent that when they finally passed the 19th Amendment to the uh, Constitution. But we know the conditions of oppression uh, still exist in, in many areas of of this planet. You know, the great ally of the United States is Saudi Arabia, which has a uh, oh. terrible record when it comes to acknowledging the inherent rights of, of the life givers, uh, the women. Mm -hmm. And uh, other European countries didn't uh, f uh, fully accept women as having complete political rights until the 19, 1970s. I believe it was some canons in Switzerland that were holding off against this. But it's inconceivable in our generation to think that women were within our grandmother's time, denied this, uh, this uh, <clears throat> the right to full participation. And uh, But there's a book written by a historian, uh, Sally Roche Wagner, called Sisters and Spirit. And uh, what that book does is it shows the deep connection between the suffragettes of the 19th century and the Iroquois. Yes. They were looking around in the world for an example of where there was gender balance, of where women actually took full part in, in, the, uh, in their society uh, without restriction. And the only place they could find it was literally at their doorstep, and that was amongst uh, the Iroquois. And so a lot of... Uh, what became the the essence of of the suffragette uh, uh, demands stemmed directly from the Iroquois, but in another way, it's kind of strange because the founders of communism, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, were also at that very time looking for an example of a people living in a state of classless harmony where all property was exchanged according to. To need, and it wasn't, uh, art, you know, the, uh, people weren't geared towards material wealth, but had another uh, <clears throat> imperative. And where did they find that society? Amongst the Iroquois. <laughs> yes. yeah. And so if you read the origin of the family, they were heavily 
uh, 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 <clears throat> beholden to a guy called Lewis Henry Morgan, the founder of American anthropology, who wrote the first uh, uh, anthropological work, serious scientific work, in the United States called League of the Iroquois in 1852. And again, here we go. Iroquois influence weaving its way through contemporary uh, uh, human uh, <clears throat> history. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I have too many questions, oh, Doug, yeah. and we're never going to get to most of them. And uh, I'm kind of uh, <laughs> stymied here as to the... I'm mean, looking at 35 questions right now. I'm looking sure. at 35 sure. questions I have not asked you. That's why you're sure. probably going to have to stay with us for the next seven hours so we can get yeah. this done right. Well, if there's nothing else people can learn from, from what, we're, what we're talking about here, that is, there's a radical... There's need before Americans can reconcile with this new era of living in a time of, of limitations, um, that they have to reconcile with their history. They have to know the truth about who they are. And uh, that means reexamining their relationship with Aboriginal people. And that means acknowledging uh, Aboriginal people as they existed prior to European contact. And uh, there's a really great book uh, called 1491 um, <clears throat> that I strongly urge uh, uh, people to read. Um, it's written by Charles Mann, and it describes what Native societies were like at uh, a year before formal contact. And it's, it's important that we remove those things that stand in the way of seeing each other as human beings. And... Um, that, that that book's a good a good start. But again, Jack Weatherford's book, uh, uh, Indian Givers, is is also a very good book, a place to start. And and Kay Marie Porterfield's Indian Contributions to the World is absolutely essential for people to understand this. With some things that are essential, I'm going to jump around and, and sure. out, out of order these questions. Being yeah. a Virgo, I have problems about jumping around. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> I really do because I like to I like to try to get it all in. But uh, why is the Bering Strait migration theory irrational? Ah, here we go. That's a good one because it's always brought up that this is a land of immigrants. That's uh, you know every politician, uh, Democrat, Republican, uh, says that we came from someplace else and that together we forged this thing called the United States of America. Well, you didn't do it in a bubble. You know, everybody had a little piece to bring with them. And you have to realize that the native people uh, were here first, and and uh, they did not come in from Asia. I believe there was a recent scientific search done when they did this genome project, and they couldn't show that there was any direct, immediate connection between the Aboriginal people in America and the <clears throat> dwellers of north uh, eastern part of Asia. It was there, there's some kind of weak DNA link, but it's insufficient to substantiate that claim that Native people came from Siberia. And anybody who's got a lick of common sense can look at a map, especially during the Ice Age when it supposedly took place, you know, 15, 12,000 years ago, and say that for a people, any people, to undertake a great uh, trek and go and encounter the, the terrible conditions, the climatic conditions in northern Siberia, then somehow magically find this 40-mile-wide ice bridge only to be confronted by a two-mile-high glacier on the eastern end, and then somehow magically there's a crevice in this great glacier, 
and these people walk 1,500 miles or 2,000 miles until they finally enter into what is now Kansas and, and South Dakota is, is irrational. Yeah, Anybody right. who's taken a walk down the streets of Manhattan can tell you what the effect of, of channeled wind will do to a human being. And there's no physical evidence to support this. There never will be because it simply didn't happen. It was a silly idea from the beginning. And if they'd only listened to our elders, we could have told them where Native people came from. Well, they, it certainly wasn't Asia. Even even through the great documentation that's now taking place through for many yes. other other anthropologists, archaeologists, scholars. Yes. Uh, yes. But it takes such a long time to get this information into yes. our it's, it's high schools. It's a myth. You know, when you do this, yeah. when you challenge Clovis, as has been rightly challenged, even to the north of you in Pennsylvania, they found this uh, evidence of human occupation in <clears throat> central Pennsylvania going back tens of thousands of years. Uh, in, in Chile, they found 70,000 uh, years backwards. And in the southwest, so Clovis is, is a theory. The great uh, the great, uh, the Bering Strait thing is a theory. There's no hard physical evidence. Certainly, when the planet uh, warmed up, there might have been some people using the coastal routes, you know, in a in a sail uh, sailing uh, along that uh, <clears throat> the uh, that top of the circle. Um, but the real origins uh, come from the south, and we know that because all of our stories have a common theme that runs through them, and that is our point of origin came from what is now Central America. Well, and that, you, that makes sense linguistically as well. Indeed. Well, the, uh, you must be psychic because we're about ready to touch on that. You've been reading my notes here, I see. Yeah. It says here, what yeah, are the origin? We all need to know where we came from. Yeah. Now, we need to know that. It gives us substance. It tells us the great story about who we are in our own individual families and, and as nations. Where did we come from? And, uh, <clears throat> you know, Native people say we were directed here and uh, we flourished in our, our respective territories. And for the Iroquois, our migration story uh, takes place in, uh, in what is now the Southwest. Let's touch on that. Let's touch on that when we come back. We need to take sure. a break here because this is really important. This is one, friends. I learned so much from this book, and that's one of the reasons why I believe you should get a copy of this book. And uh, as we've already said, you buy a copy of this book, you can have any book that we've ever talked about on Twenty First Century Radio. If we still have a copy of that, or any of my books, or Zoe's books, or whatever. Our guest, of course, is Douglas George, Good Pine. And uh, the book that we are talking about is Iroquois Culture and Commentary, Clear Light Publications. And it's really important that the next book we must discuss with him, not tonight, but at some time in the future, Iroquois on Fire, a voice from the Mohawk Nation. A great, another great book. Our guest is Douglas George. We are taking some questions from his book. Iroquois Culture and Commentary, Clear Light Publications. Uh, Douglas, we started to talk about the origins of the Iroquois, and you started to note that they came from the southwest of the United States. Is that yes. correct? Yes, absolutely right. We, uh, the late philosopher Vine Deloria and myself, uh, organized a series of uh, events uh, which we brought together the elements, what we'd call traditional knowledge, and one of them was origins. So we asked... Uh, Hopi people and Anishinaabe people and Inuit people from the uh, 
Alaskan northern slopes and uh, Mayan peoples, we had one question that we wanted answered at the end of our three-day session is that where did we come from? And all the stories point like the uh, the uh, trunk of a tree to a certain root. <clears throat> we have branches here and there, but they all come from, from uh, a certain stem, and that root is in Central America. So then we asked the uh, Mayans, well, where did you come from? If you're the grandfather, the grandmothers of all Aboriginal people in the Americas, where did you come from? And they told us a story that's, again, consistent with the Sky Woman epic and dovetails with a lot of other stories and other uh, cultures. And that is how the Earth was one day uh, shifted its polarity and was inundated by great water. And that the homeland of Aboriginal people was in an area that is now uh, the west eastern part of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, certain things happened. The Earth's balance was <clears throat> upset. This land uh, became immersed in the water, and then the refugees found um, <clears throat> haven on the hills of what is now Guatemala and Nicaragua. And from there, they went south, and from there, they went north. That's the story as we know it. So we're looking for any uh, <clears throat> intrepid uh, Indiana Jones-type archaeologist there who's, who's willing to, um, or even Bob Ballard, to take us up on the story, and we'll point them to the point where the origin was. Mm -hmm. Put your submersibles there, and you'll find truth. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. Well, all right. Um, uh, do you, uh, you know, I'm going to say something I never say on our radio show here, yeah. but, you know, with you and Joanne, you there. Uh, this studio here yeah. has um, a f few other beans in it that haven't sure. been here before. Uh, yeah, well, you're, where you are right now in Maryland is an area that was a place of great meeting uh, from Native peoples from throughout the uh, East. Uh, we had a great trail, a water trail, that would go down the uh, Susquehanna and uh, would reach uh, that region, and there would meet other uh, peoples from the coast. And there was a great alliance between the Iroquois Confederacy in, in the north and then the Powhatan Confederacy in that re region where you now are. Mm -hmm. And so it's a great meeting ground It's uh, for, for different Native peoples, and the essence of their presence there is, is certainly felt by anybody who has any degree of, of sensitivity. Well, this is, uh, to me, one of the most important questions to ask of all. Uh -huh. Women are the center of Iroquois life. Yes. How, yes, why, yeah. and has it always been this way? <laughs> yeah, it, always, it wasn't always that way because we experienced times when we drifted away from our original instructions, which is why the spiritual being sent uh, this, this messenger to us, Kanalahawi, and and he was a guy with uh, that is described as having uh, white hair, perhaps an albino with a double roll of teeth. And he, despite this impediment, he came to us and managed to persuade us that there was a new way of thinking, that if we recognized natural law, that we would find a way to live in peace with each other. And uh, as I said before, it was the women who first embraced this because as life givers, they were less... Um, eager to surrender their children to to warfare and all of that uh, that all of which that entails than the men were and so he designed the political system in conjunction with uh, Jagunsa say to reflect that reality so 
women have very specific um, powers under our constitution, our great law. Uh, women are the ones who select, nominate all leaders. Um, every leader has to abide by certain uh, qualification when it comes to personal integrity, stable family life, uh, <clears throat> sensitivity towards the people, and genuine humility. And then it goes through a uh, review process by the clan and then by the nation. So there's a series of re things that take place um, prior to a person being becoming what in English would be called a chief. The women had impeachment powers. Now, that's something that was unheard of in Europe, but is part of the United States Constitution, was direct, taken directly from us. And that is, if a person who's considered a servant of the people transgresses upon that, the women can meet together and, and, and uh, strip that person of their responsibilities. Uh, women control all, power, all things that involve life-taking uh, in, in a way of uh, they are the ones who can veto war, or they could initiate it if they see that it's necessary to protect uh, the community. Capital punishment, which is part of uh, Iroquois life, um, a person could be executed for forcing himself upon a woman, and they were the ones, the women together as a collective, could decide whether or not to, to initiate that specific activities. Naturalization, um, which is a great part of American life, if you understand how the Iroquois um, created citizens and how the Americans did it, you'll see it's one and the same. <laughs> and we took somebody who was born of another nation and we made them into Iroquois through formal naturalization uh, process that took uh, a number of years, had certain very strict qualifications, and it's the same thing as the Americans do now. So, And when it comes to material wealth, we know from our study of economics, uh, for those who have studied at uh, Penn State or Wharton School of Economics, you know all true wealth comes from <clears throat> uh, those who are able to control the means of production. And in the Iroquois society, who control the means of production? Women. Of course. Who decide how property and wealth was distributed. It was it was our women who did that. Who controlled the names of our, our children? Uh, it was women. And when a man, um, uh, in, in a personal level, when a couple married, uh, the man um, went into the woman's uh, community, entered her world, and, and lived with her family. And, it, and when it comes to divorce, uh, which <clears throat> unfortunately has become all too characteristic of American life, uh, all real property owned by the couple went to the woman. And the only thing the man could uh, take was his personal um, tools and his clothing. And it was the women only who could initiate um, divorce. So all of that, you know, <laughs> flowed through the feminine. And you can imagine how uh, people like uh, uh, Washington and, and Franklin and those fellows would have reacted when they when they heard about this, and they did hear about it. Oh, they heard about it, of course. And, uh, well, we know yes, what they that, did. The reaction, as I mentioned in the beginning of the show, was uh, yes. not so good. Well, we blew it, as far as I was yes. concerned. Uh, now, we got less than a minute or so here, and I am torn between so many questions here. But yes. I've got to—I was going to ask you who are a few of the Iroquois' greatest heroes, and uh, and uh, a number of things. But I want to end with this one. Tell us sure. about your heroine grandmother, Josephine Susan Foote. Oh, she was a great woman. Uh, she was. Uh, she didn't speak any English. I think maybe her only two words in English, from what my uncle said, was like 
Greyhound and Syracuse. <laughs> and the reason is because she was immersed in Mohawk, and uh, uh, when when her daughter, my aunt, was uh, a teenager, she went to Syracuse in order to uh, uh, find a job during World War II. And uh, my aunt uh, had, uh, my uh, my grandmother had an amazing ability to sense things before they were happened. She was also a healer. And uh, unfortunately, uh, in 1951, when she was visiting my aunt, my aunt had just given birth, um, and there was a fire that took place in Syracuse, and my, my uh, grandmother had the infant child with her. And the fire was started uh, on the bottom floor of a tailor shop. And as the flames were coming up the stage, uh, the stairs, my grandmother had a choice, either save the child or, or save herself. And there was a crowd, and my grandmother tossed my, uh, my aunt's baby to the crowd. And my grandmother was a, was a solid woman, very, very physically strong. And <clears throat> she knew that... Uh, that was the last thing she could do as the flames were, were coming towards her. And so she jumped out of the building and in doing so um, died when she hit the ground. Oh, yeah. But she was one of those amazing people that could sense things long before they were uh, about to happen. But one of the things about our healers is they cannot heal themselves. And sometimes that vision as to their own fate is denied them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that was her experience. But uh, she was one wh- of the great Mohawk women. Was your dad a great lacrosse player? My uncle was the was best your lacrosse uncle? player in the world. Yeah. This goes to all you guys at John Hopkins and, and Baltimore, <laughs> Maryland Community College. Is when we get our Ainwatha Institute started in Syracuse, we're gonna you watch out for us because. Well, uh, you know, us. I got to tell you, we I, I know we're out of time, but when I saw that story that the the the, the Iroquois could not uh, compete. Uh, in the world stage in the cross, it was just terrible. It was well, just. We got, we got the silver medal uh, last month in uh, oh. playing box lacrosse in Czechoslovakia. We came, we our Czech Republic. We beat the Americans. We came second only. Well, we gotta go. Ah, darn it! We needed another five hours. See you next week on Twenty First Century Radio. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cordner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington. And I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus.